From Ligori Publications, this is a Redemptorist Pastoral Communications audio book. Codependency is an unhealthy pattern of thinking, deciding, and relating in which we define our happiness and pain according to how other people and circumstances beyond our control relate to us. Consequently, codependents try to control other people and circumstances to minimize their pain and increase their comfort. We have an expert on the subject, Philip St. Romain, the Associate Director of the Spiritual Life Center in Wichita, Kansas. Mr. St. Romain. Mother says, <clears throat> what does your girlfriend like in you, son? Oh, she thinks I'm handsome, talented, clever, and a good dancer. And what do you like about her? She thinks I'm handsome, talented, <laughs> clever, and a good dancer. That's kind of what this topic is about, codependency. Okay, let's try another one here. After a heated argument with his wife, a man said, why can't we live peacefully like our two dogs who never fight? No, they don't, his wife agreed, but tie them together and see what happens. <laughs> And that's how it goes for many. Yes, if we'd have been having a workshop or afternoon series or session on codependency 10 years ago, uh, uh, you know, most of you would have wondered, well, what is this? If your <coughs> president of Liguri Publications had invited you to an afternoon like this, you might have looked at that and said, I, I don't know what that is. And yet here we are in 1992, and it's a word that is certainly much more recognized by many people. Something has happened in the last 10 years. 10 years ago, my uh, understanding and experience of codependency was as a professional substance abuse counselor, working in treatment centers, working in schools, and the word was largely associated with uh, alcoholism and drug addiction. In fact, uh, the first definition of codependency that I ever heard was a codependent is a person who is close to a chemically dependent person and has been affected in many ways by that chemically dependent person's behavior so that their whole life stance has been determined by the chemical dependency. They're reacting to that. They're caretaking this person. They're rescuing. So that's where it was. And now uh, we have many books, magazine articles, pamphlets coming out talking about codependency in a much larger context. So I'd like to begin by giving a little historical sketch on where this idea has come from and how we've gotten to the point that we are now, if we can define what that point is now even about uh, where are we in our understanding of codependency. Because uh, maybe some of you have already uh, been called codependent by someone else. There are writers out there who say that 97% of us are codependent. I guess that makes us normal then or something, huh? Um, there's almost an extreme uh, view that would see codependency everywhere. And then and there's another extreme today which would see maybe it doesn't even really exist. So let's, let's do a little history. I guess the history 
would, would have to go back to the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous. Certainly there was what we're now calling codependency before then, just as there was alcoholism before then. But it was not really as recognized and as, as well understood as it is today. Before AA came into existence, it was very common for the spouse of an alcoholic to say something like this. Sure, I'm preoccupied and worried, and, and sure, I have many sleepless nights, and I can be cranky, um, but there's really nothing wrong with me and this family. What's wrong with me and this family is that alcoholic's drinking. If they stop drinking, I'll be okay. That's what's wrong with me. What's wrong with me is, we'll say, him and his drinking. And so AA came onto the scene slowly at first and then began spreading throughout the country from the mid-1930s on until now there's many thousands of groups throughout the world. And for the first time in history, there was an organized, systematic, step-by-step -step approach that one could enter into and have some reasonable assurance of breaking free from alcoholism. Alcoholics had recovered in the past, but it was very much hit and miss. Some would get well through religion, some would just uh, white-knuckle it through life. Um, some could get some help through counseling, but there really wasn't much that could help an alcoholic before AA. And now, with AA, thousands of people started to remain abstinent and to even feel pretty good about themselves. That's what we call recovery. They're no longer indulging their addiction, but they're not just staying dry or free, they're also feeling pretty good. What happened to that spouse and that family? Remember, they had been saying, what's wrong with us is this drinking. If that goes away, we'll be okay. You think that happened? No, it didn't happen. And it began to be very obvious that this was a pattern. This wasn't just one person who wasn't getting well or another who wasn't getting well. Many, many people were having the same experience, that even though the spouse or the family member <clears throat> began to recover from alcoholism, they were pretty much stuck in the same mindset. They were very focused on that person. And now instead of worrying about whether they would drink or not, they'd worry about whether they'd stay well or whether they'd start drinking again. And it was as though they had become stuck in an attitude and a whole relationship stance toward that sick person where their life was focused on that person and they couldn't refocus on themselves. They defined their own identity, their happiness and unhappiness in terms of that person's behavior out there. And their behavior was focused on somehow controlling or influencing the other person's behavior, and that did not stop just because the alcoholic got well. Well, enough people began to realize that was going on with them, and they began to say, maybe you know, we need for us the same kind of help that the alcoholics are getting from themselves, for themselves through AA. They began to meet in small groups, and they began to practice the same 12 steps that AA was using, and uh, they became known as the group we now call Al-Anon. Al-Anon for 
the spouses, family members, close friends of uh, alcoholics. And the focus on Al-Anon was on how to get my life back. Not how to stop this person from drinking, not how to keep them straight. That's why they'd usually joined. They, they would join to figure out how to change this other person. And then they would learn in the group, you can't change the other person. You can only change yourself. And we can't teach you anything in this group about how to make this person stop drinking or how to keep them from starting again. But we can teach you how to be happy whether they start again or not. And of course, for many who first entered Al-Anon, that seemed like impossible. You know, what are you saying? That I can be okay even though this other person is not okay? And they said, yes, we'll teach you how to do that. It's called detaching with care. And that's the main emphasis in Al-Anon, is how I can care for a person but not get caught up in their problems so that I can be me and have my own life whether the other person is healthy or not. Now, what the, these people were experiencing was uh, seen so commonly that we gave a name for it. Just as we give a name for alcoholism, we know what that is, we began to call the experience that the spouse and family members had, we call that co-alcoholism. And the co-alcoholic was usually defined very much like we define caretaking codependence now. A person whose life had been affected adversely by an alcoholic, who's very focused on the alcoholic's behavior, who reacted emotionally to the alcoholic's behavior, who tried to control the alcoholic, um, who usually had very low self-esteem, and so forth, the kind of characteristics we'll, we'll go over in a few minutes. And that was called co-alcoholism. And we could still call it co-alcoholism when you find it in a, the context of an alcoholic family. That's, that'd be a good name for it. But as America's uh, appetite for chemicals changed through the late 50s and the early 60s, <clears throat> we began to see a whole variety of addictions to not just alcohol now, but marijuana and heroin and cocaine and LSD and all kinds of new synthetic mood-altering pills. Uh, what are we going to call these addictions? I mean, it's kind of silly to say I'm an alcoholic and a marijuana addict and an LSD addict and so forth. So the term was uh, drug addict or drug addiction or substance addiction. And you'll still find those terms out in the society. And you'll even still find people who say, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. When, of course, alcohol is a drug, um, every, much, every bit as much a drug as, as cocaine. The, the term that finally, I guess, stuck most, at least in the, uh, the counseling profession, was uh, a kind of a, a term to catch all these addictions to, to put them all together and say what these addictions really are is an addiction to chemicals that change the way you feel. That's what they all have in common. And, uh, and when a person becomes uh, dependent on chemicals, we can say they are chemically dependent. And so that term began to be used, where the, the alcoholic was one example of chemical dependency. Uh, marijuana addict is another example of chemical dependency. But that's all really the same thing. It's addiction to chemicals. What then do you call the spouse and family member of the chemically dependent? You don't call them a co-alcoholic. 
you call them a codependent. And that's where the term started. Now, some, something else that's happened since uh, the 60s, especially I'd say since the late 70s, is the proliferation of inpatient and outpatient treatment centers for chemical dependency in this country. When I first began training for substance abuse counseling in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, there was only one treatment center in all of South Louisiana, in Baton Rouge. And people sent their family members there from several states. It was kind of a new thing. Hospital had 40 beds set aside, and there was a counseling program, and there were social workers and nurses and physicians on duty, and it was a multidisciplinary approach and a real new model. And it worked really well. It gave people a good start into recovery. It also made a lot of money. And so guess what happened? Uh, the hospital next door heard about that. And the hospital in the next town heard about that. And uh, the first thing you knew within a few years, Baton Rouge, Louisiana had five chemical dependency treatment centers. And New Orleans had seven. And Mamou, Louisiana had one. Mamou's got about 2,000 people live in Mamou. But, I mean, it caught on. Uh, this is something that was meeting a need, and hospitals were making money. And most insurance policies had some kind of coverage available for that, and so people were really getting the word. Uh, you could, and it kind of snowballed. Family members went in, and as part of the, the program of chemical dependency treatment, you had a family component. Family members learned about addiction, and they learned about codependency. And as they were learning, they would say, you know, Uncle Joe's got the same thing. And uh, so does my oldest kid. And they need to come here, too. And uh, so after the program would be over, they'd be in this aftercare group for six months to a year. And during that time, they'd do everything they could to get Uncle Joe in and uh, the oldest kid in. And they'd come in, and you'd have another family week, and you'd realize that Grandpa had been an alcoholic, too. And in other words, <clears throat> this snowballed so that uh, people were growing in awareness of what chemical dependency was and codependency was and then adult children of alcoholics issues and they were bringing their friends and family members in. This did not happen through television advertising. It didn't happen through Betty Ford's book. Uh, it happened, uh, as we say in the program, it's a program of attraction. It's meeting my need. It looks like you have the same need. Why don't you come on in and see if it can help you? So it was a nice uh, setup, you know, people bringing, recruiting patients for these hospitals who are uh, only too happy to have them do that. And um, in a very short period of time, we saw hundreds of thousands of families in this country go through treatment centers where they learned about codependency, adult children issues, the wounded inner child, and so forth. There really wasn't even much literature to give them back in the early 80s. There was one book by a man named Robert Ackerman on children of alcoholics. There was a pretty good book by a man named uh, Johnson, Vern Johnson, on uh, I'll Quit Tomorrow that described what chemical dependency was. Now there are whole publishing companies that publish mostly this kind of literature and are doing very well, I might add. Now some of our best sellers in the New York Times lists of nonfiction books 
are recovery books. Melody Beatty's Codependent No More has been averaging 40,000 copies a month for years. How many books? You know, that's pretty good. You all know that that's, a, that's pretty good uh, sales, right? Uh, I'll take that for any one of my books, <laughs> put it that way. Um, so uh, something has happened. Uh, uh, something has caught on. The whole concept of codependency has really uh, evolved from a grassroots level. And it's all over in the culture. People are using this word, and they're using it to describe something about their relationships. Uh, what's funny, by the way, about this word, just a little aside, is that in the newest dictionaries I've seen, you still won't find that word. What, what do you have to do to get a word in the dictionary anyway, I wonder? Uh, you know, there are many words in that dictionary that I have never seen and will never use, most certainly. But here's a word, codependency, that people are talking about all over the place, and it's not in the dictionary. So uh, you figure that one out. So it is all over the place. Books are given this title. Uh, there are national conferences. And here's another place you won't find it. You won't find it in the Psychiatric Diagnostic Style Manual, the DSM-3R. The psychiatric profession does not recognize something called codependency. Uh, in fact, if you uh, re read USA Today's little magazine, the Sunday Magazine, their Mother's Day featured article was uh, devoted to kind of uh, ridiculing, I would say, the whole idea of codependency and recovery. They, they really misinterpreted the whole recovery movement and had two clinical psychologists uh, who are married to each other, man and woman, saying that the whole recovery movement is really about blaming our parents for our irresponsibility and this has gone far enough and so this Mother's Day we're going to say hey mom you really did a good job and we're not going to blame you for how screwed up we are. That's what recovery is doing. So I mean there is a backlash to how popular this has gotten and uh, the backlash can be found in, in many places. Nevertheless we have to look at people who have voted with their feet in their pocketbooks in the last 10 years. They voted with their feet by going into programs that treat codependency, and they voted with their pocketbooks from the literature. <clears throat> and as you know, with books and literature, uh, people are not totally stupid. They might buy something just to see what it's like. And if it doesn't meet a need, what will they do? Will they buy that again? Will they tell their friends to buy it? No, they won't. If something works out in the culture, it's meeting some kind of need. It's speaking to them and their experience in some way. You don't sell 40,000 copies of a book every month if it's total nonsense. You might do it for a few months if you have a real slick promotion campaign, but after a year, that'll be it. You'll never hear of the book again. Here's Codependent No More after about five years still selling that. Okay, so what's it all about? Okay, I'm going to draw up here what we uh, saw in the treatment field and the big news in the last five years is that this concept has expanded beyond the field of addiction and recovery in reference to chemical dependency and we've begun to see that it's all over the place really. <clears throat> Before I get into the, uh, the little diagram, if you would look at the second page 
in your handout, essential symptoms of codependency, you'll see that the expansion of this metaphor or concept of codependency, uh, we now recognize three types of codependence. Caretaking types, romance or relationship addiction types, and messiah complex types. And I'll say a little bit about all three as we go along. What these three types have in common is that they are all focused on another person or group of people as the source of my being happy or unhappy, my being okay or not okay. That's what makes them all examples of codependency. So going back to the first page, just a little working definition before we get into the dynamics. What is codependency? It's an unhealthy pattern of thinking, deciding, and relating in which we define our happiness and pain according to how other people and circumstances beyond our control relate to us. So my happiness and pain, my happiness and unhappiness is determined by you uh, or by uh, a group of people or by my children. Uh, you make me okay or not okay. And we say, yeah, there's a little bit of truth in that, but you know, when I talk about external referencing, we'll see that the other person is our center. The center is not inside of us in our relationship with our God. Now, if you make me okay or not okay, then what I have to try to do is figure out how to get you to act in such a way that I'll be okay, right? And I have to figure out how to get you to stop acting in such a way that makes me not okay. Consequently, codependents try to control other people and circumstances to minimize their pain and increase their comfort. So wherever you find codependency, you also find uh, manipulation and control as big issues. And boundaries, I'd say, is another big issue there, too. <coughs> okay, so that's the general concept. Now I'm going to try to put some experience into it to show you um, what this means on a sort of an everyday level. I guess you can see, okay, here, right. The way we first saw this, again, was in the context of chemical dependency. Let's draw chemical dependency. Here's, let's say, uh, we'll call, let, we'll, we'll just break all the stereotypes and say, the wife is an alcoholic, okay? Her name is Sally. No one in here named Sally, right? Good. Sally's an alcoholic. She has this relationship with mood-altering chemicals. That's this MAC right here. When we say she has a relationship, we mean that she has thoughts about alcohol, she has feelings about alcohol, memories about alcohol, desires about alcohol, all of that that goes into a relationship. Relationship is a bond between a person and something else, or someone else. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a relationship with alcohol. A lot of people do. Over 50% of the adults in our culture drink alcohol. But about 15% of those who drink have serious problems with the alcohol. And she's one of those people. And we've learned that there's a variety of reasons why she would be having problems, none the least of which is uh, biological and genetic. The way her whole biochemistry responds to alcohol is probably different from those 85% 
who, who don't seem to have a problem. Perhaps if we did a little interview in this room, we could even find that among you. How many of you don't really like alcohol, the way it makes you feel, the way it tastes? You see a show of hands there? Well, two people. There's usually 10 to 15% of the population that's like that. They just really are uh, very much negatively affected by alcohol. <clears throat> it's kind of a bell-shaped curve, what this looks like. Then there's the rest. Uh, you know, then there's the 10 to 15 percent of people that really, really like alcohol, that like the way it makes them feel. Um, they get high on it. They don't get as big a hangover. I'm not going to ask you to show your hands <laughs> who you are, because uh, those would be the people that would be most likely to get into a, a very uh, serious and intense relationship with alcohol. Then there's the rest of us that are closer to one extreme than the other, and some right in the middle that you can take it or leave it. It's okay, for, you know, but you, know, you can live without it too. It's nice sometimes, but I mean, you know, a seven up will do just as well in most occasions. Not so for an alcoholic to suggest that, well, why don't you have a seven up instead of a beer? Oh boy. But again, I don't want to get too much into what alcoholism is because I want to show you what codependency is. But uh, there's so much misunderstanding about what alcoholism is that it, it you know, we, we could certainly profit uh, from getting into that a little bit, but maybe that'll come up in the question and discussion time. Her relationship with alcohol is not a healthy relationship. Like everyone else, she gets some uh, euphoria from alcohol. Alcoholics really get euphoria. Euphoria is just where it's so very blissfully pleasurable that, uh, I mean, there's nothing else like it. She also experiences pleasure from it, experiences relief sometime from stress. It helps her to slow down and de-stress. And sometimes she uses alcohol to what we call obliviate. And that means just not think about anything, not feel anything, just forget everything. There's probably nothing wrong with using alcohol for these reasons every now and then, okay? And an alcoholic's not a person who gets drunk. Many non-alcoholics get drunk. Uh, alcoholics are people who can't control their drinking once they start drinking. I, I, that's the best non-medical but certainly functional definition of alcoholism I ever heard is an alcoholic is a person who cannot guarantee his or her behavior after the first drink. They might have two, they might have 20. They might get mad and they might not. Most of us can probably pretty well guarantee our behavior through the rest of the afternoon. Uh, but you can't do that when you have some kind of a uh, addictive disorder or mental disorder. As a result of this relationship, she begins to have all kinds of problems. And the problems run through a wide range of uh, types. Financial problems, physical health problems, marital problems, emotional problems, moral problems, legal problems, problems at work. It really touches the whole lifestyle. These don't start at once. This situation develops gradually through time. There are like stages of this disease process, but, but we'll, we'll develop it here up to, let's say, a, a pretty late stage, a, well, late middle stage, where the problems are significant. You can't hide from them anymore. 
and it's aware to the people around her that these problems are all related to her drinking. And if she weren't drinking, a lot of these problems would not exist. These problems, in turn, give her all kinds of pain. She may have already had some of this pain from her family of origin or her life experience. That might have contributed to some of the pain she carries within. This pain being fear, shame, loneliness, anger, guilt. But certainly these problems now uh, also contribute. When she feels pain, what does she do to relieve pain? Look at that word right there, relief, right? So one way and for her, the best way to relieve pain is to use chemicals. That in turn causes more problems, which causes more pain, and this is the, the cycle that every addict is caught in, this cycle of, of using and pain. When she's not using, she still has the pain, but she's developed a kind of a defense system to go around it that keeps her out of touch with it. So when she's not using, she might feel kind of cranky and numb. And that's pretty hard for the people around her to live with, too. Sometimes that's even harder to live with than the drinking itself, is this crankiness and this, uh, you feel like you're walking around on eggshells when you're around a practicing addict. And she gets tired of it, too. I mean, this is a painful situation for her. One way that addicts get out of this numbness and crankiness, feeling not quite dead, not quite alive, is they use their fix and alcohol for her. Okay, so this goes on and on. What does she tell herself about this alcoholism? Well, believe it or not, she may know that there's a relationship between the drinking and the problems. She may know that, but really doesn't think it's that bad. If, if you were to ask her, uh, why do you have so many problems? Could it be that your drinking is contributing? She would probably say, it's not that bad. I'm going to write these down. It's not that bad. <clears throat> I can stop any time. I'm in control. And I'm only hurting myself. Okay? Now, if in your mind you believe that your drinking is not that bad, you can stop any time, and you're only hurting yourself, then why should you stop? There's no reason to, right? In other words, these three statements, it's not that bad, I can stop any time, I'm only hurting myself, really say, I'm not an alcoholic, I don't have a drinking problem. This is the part of alcoholism that we call denial and delusion. And it's in the mind, not so much in the feeling part. That's the way we think about this disease. And remember, thinking is one part of that relationship. So the way we think about this relationship with alcohol is pretty diluted. We think we're in control. We think we can stop any time. We think there's nothing wrong. Okay? This is a very brief profile of an alcoholic. Pain inside, defensive wall on the outside. Now here's a problem for you. If your name is uh, Bill. Any Bills in here? No Bills. Okay, we'll change the name of Bill. If we have, but Bill is fine. How, if you're married to Sally, 
How do you stay connected to her in this relationship? How do you have a relationship with a person whose life has become like this? What do you do? Well, a healthy relationship between two people is one where you know, you would have the two people and they would have a bond with each other and they'd be both giving and receiving on a thinking level and a feeling level. Even spiritually we can speak of a giving and receiving of attention and energy that nourishes them. And this bond between them is why people get married. Intimacy, it's a need that we all have. A need to belong, a need to belong to. And it's, it's a need that you can't meet by yourself, right? And you can eat food by yourself, but you can't meet your intimacy needs by yourself. Uh, God sort of placed that one inside of us as, as the starting point for community, to move us toward community. And so this is why they got married. Uh, they were meeting some intimacy needs, and that's, of course, a big struggle, how to do that through the years. But as she got involved with alcohol, and later other chemicals, she started to meet those kind of emotional needs outside of the relationship. Alcohol started to fulfill that emotional need she had uh, inside, the same kind of need she was getting met in the relationship. She started to go to alcohol when she, when she was in pain, instead of talking about it. She started to uh, look to alcohol to make her feel better. And when she was feeling pretty good, she, she looked to alcohol uh, as a way to, to get even higher, to move toward euphoria. So the more any addict goes toward their addiction in general, the less they're going toward other people in a healthy way. That's a pretty general rule, and that's why it's so destructive. And here's something else we can introduce at this point. Instead of saying alcohol, she could have also been going toward more and more toward her work, let's say, or toward a shopping addiction, or toward a gambling addiction. You could put any addiction right here. Where I have MAC, you could put MAE, mood altering experience, and get the same thing happening. Okay, it would be the same thing. This is just a profile of addiction, and this particular addiction happens to be alcohol. Well, now that you know, she's really going into alcohol, uh, how is he supposed to be connected to her? And you know, he, he reaches out to her, but there's this wall. There's just this wall of defenses. Uh, she seems cranky. She, you know, you just can't predict what her response will be. And I guess that's the hardest thing in living with any addict is you don't know what is going to happen. Maybe they'll be nice and gentle, and maybe they won't. 